there was a mother of a 12-year-old boy who brought him to the local rabbi for bar mitzvah lessons. And you know the saying, what's the definition of a genius is a mediocre student with a Jewish mother. <laughs> he was not the brightest boy, but don't, don't tell his mother that. And she brought him to the, to the rabbi for his bar mitzvah training. And he was not, to say the least, he was not making progress in his studies. And about three months into it, she overhears her son sitting in his room practicing the uh, Hebrew reading that the rabbi had given him. And she can make out him saying, and horrified, she picks up the phone and she calls the rabbi and she says, Rabbi, what is going on? I thought you're teaching him Torah portion, you're teaching him the Haftorah. And I walk by my son's room and he's, he's, he's saying, Kaddish, I mean, that's, is this what you think of me? Are you, I, I'm a young woman still. I mean, you th you, 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 you're cursing me? You think, uh, you think I'm going to pass away anytime soon? And the rabbi said, no, no, Mrs. Goldstein, by the time your little Davidal is able to say the whole Kaddish, you will have lived a very long life. When we talk about Jewish customs in observing our connection with those who have passed on, what we're really talking about is a story about the body and the soul. We're talking about a journey that begins before the creation of the world, the eternal soul which existed before the world was created. And there are various high points and moments of great drama. There's the soul's embodiment when it's, when it's born, when a, when a new baby comes into this world. And, and there's a new mission to be fulfilled. There's a person now, a new person, a new little person who's going to live for a certain amount of years and months and days and hours and seconds and do something that no soul has ever done before in the history of the world. Because if not, it would have been superfluous for this soul to, to come to the world. And, and, and that person's going to live through all types of their own life cycle events and and marriage and the birth of their own children. And, and then eventually that soul's going to return where it came from, hopefully leaving this world a better place and, and leaving behind those who love and care for this soul that they got to know during its time here in a body. But, th but that's the way that we have to frame it. That's the way we have to look at it. We're talking about a story about a body and a soul. And, and where do we learn this from? Like everything in Judaism, our basis for all knowledge is revelation. The revelation at Sinai. The Torah reveals to us all truth. All truth is hidden in the Torah. It's been said that 
the Torah is a document written in code, but which is intelligible even when read without being decoded. You follow what I'm saying? The Torah is actually written in code. Yet, you know, a normal code, when you look at it, you're aware of the fact that it needs to be decoded. You need to crack the code. So you understand, I don't understand. When you look at the Torah, it is intelligible even if you don't decode it. You'll start reading and there's stories going on here and I can follow the narrative and I understand there's Abraham, there's Isaac and Jacob. But the truth is at the very same time, that's all code. And there are various levels of code. There are levels of hidden meaning. In fact, there's infinite meaning packed into the Torah. The Torah, in a, in a certain way, is sort of like, remember the old uh, bullion cubes, those soup cubes? Yeah, imagine like uh, a bullion cube that you can produce infinite soup from. It's hyper-condensed, the bullion cube. Then you put it in the hot water and it becomes a, a nice bowl of soup. So the Torah is hyper-condensed. It's the infinite one's infinite wisdom, but it's hyper-condensed because it's in a finite format. And through the millennia, our people, the people of the book, we unpack, we decode, we continually decode. We're continuing now to, to decode the, the meaning that's constricted, compacted within every word, within every letter. It says about Rabbi Akiva, he could even decode the calligraphy. If you've ever seen the Torah writing, how there are thorns on the letters, little crowns on the letters. The design, he could decode that as well. And there, he, he could extrapolate practical guidance based on the, the calligraphy of the letters. So everything in the Torah, you can read it as it's written, and it, and it reads, it's intelligible, it makes sense. But at the same time, there are deeper, uh, infinitely deeper levels and layers within every word of the Torah. The story of Abraham and Sarah is actually our source for a lot of the knowledge we have about body and soul and their separation from each other. The Holy Zohar, which is the canonical text of the Kabbalah, it explains to us that Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah were actual people. These were our, our Bubby and Zadie. Um, but at the same time, they represent spiritual concepts. Abraham represents the soul. Sarah represents the body. And the story about Abraham and Sarah is a story about the soul and the body. So it tells us that Sarah passed away. And that Abraham came and he was crying over her grave. And where did this occur? This happened in Kiryas Arba, which is also known as Hevroin, in the land of Canaan. And then Abraham got back up and he left his departed. The Zohar explains, this is, talking, this is teaching us, this is talking to us about what happens for every soul-body combination that, that um, parts from each other 
after the allotted time of the person in this world, Abraham, the, the, the soul, needs to leave. And Sarah, the body, stays behind. And what happens is Abraham comes and cries over the grave of Sarah. The soul comes and cries over the body. Where does this happen? It says Kyrgyz Arba. Kyrgyz Arba means the village of fours. But there's a code there as well. The physical world is composed of four elements. Air, fire, earth, water. So Kyrgyz Arba means when the four elements are together, where? In Hevron. Hevron is the word Chibur. Chibur means attachment. When the four elements are in a state of attachment. But what happens is they break into their elemental components. In other words, the body begins to disintegrate. And the soul is watching this and witnessing it and, and mourning over the loss of its partner, its life partner. That occurred where? In the land of Canaan. Canaan also, other than being a proper noun, it also means a merchant. You ever heard of a high-risk investment? The soul coming to this world is a high-risk investment because you can bet that if the soul would remain in heaven, it would remain perfectly pure. There's no temptation. There's nothing to lead it astray. Can bask in godliness all day long. Coming down to a body is a high-risk investment. That's why this entire physical world is collectively known metaphorically as the land of Canaan, the land of business. Because Hashem, God Almighty himself, makes a high-risk investment in this enterprise called I'm going to risk putting a pure, pristine soul, which is a part of godliness itself, in a physical body where its spiritual sensitivity is going to be covered up. It's going to be muted by being buried under phenomenological stimuli, meaning what you taste and touch and see and hear and all the physical senses that cover up the spiritual senses. And yet, what that soul is going to accomplish in tandem with the body is more precious than anything that it could accomplish in heaven. And therefore, the high-risk high investment is worth it. So the soul and the body become partners. Now, you, you, you should know that at first, the soul doesn't want to come down. In Pirkei Avot, in the, the ethics, it tells us, against your will do you live. What does it mean, against your will do you live? Your soul doesn't want to come down. Why should it be plunged into a physical body? This is not a nice place, the physical world. If you're a soul, it's a very scary place. Levi Yitzchak Berdichever, the great defender of the Jewish people, he was once heard, as he was often wont to do, arguing with God in defense of the Jews. And he was once heard, overheard, arguing with God. And he said, God, look what you did to the Jewish people. You put them in this world. You took their souls and put them in this world where you walk down the street and you are beset by all the temptations and all the distractions. And if you want a little wisdom, you have to actually take the effort to go open a holy book. Of course nobody has a chance. No one stands a chance. That's why we sit. 
God, you should have done it the exact opposite way. You should have made the world that you walk down the street and you are met with holiness and light and wisdom and love. And if you want to find out about temptation, you should be forced to go open a book. Then we would have a fighting chance. So this is, this is a, a high-risk investment. So the soul doesn't want to come down. And yet, what happens after the soul enters the body? The soul finds out that it can do something in the body that it couldn't do up there. What's the life of the soul in heaven? The way I would describe it is revelation. The soul gets to witness, gets to behold godly revelation. Spirituality. And the intensity of that revelation is profoundly pleasurable for the soul. That's the pleasure of paradise. It's not a physical pleasure, obviously. It's the pleasure of being blown away by the revelation of godliness that's in paradise. Here's the problem. As long as the soul is observing godliness, then the soul and God are two distinct entities. In other words, there's I, the observer, and there's that which I'm, I am observing. So the soul in heaven, as much as it sees all this great revelation that we can't even fathom, at the end of the day, it's a subjective relationship. The soul is observing God, observing godly revelation, observing godliness, however you want to describe it. As opposed to what? The soul comes down to a body. The soul now sees nothing. Now it's the exact opposite condition. Now the soul is buried under all of these senses, packed inside this meat suit, and sees nothing. Maybe a faint glimmer of a conscience once in a while. But generally speaking, down here in this world, no. We see the physical world. But what happens now? Hashem commands us, do my will. Just like if I wanted to grab this cup of water and I don't even have to argue with my hand or bargain with my hand. I just, I will, I desire the cup should be in my hand and my hand automatically obeys. It's my hand after all. Shouldn't it obey? Of course. When the soul's in a body and we do a mitzvah, we actually become like God's hand, like a limb of a person that automatically obeys because it's that surrendered, it's that nullified. So the soul up in heaven sees God, but they're two distinct entities, me and God, subjective experience. The soul down here in a body sees nothing but gets to become one with God by being an extension of his will, by being that hand that literally that hand that puts on the tefillin for God or lights the Shabbos candles for God. So the soul starts to realize, hey, as much as I was able to see up there, 
I couldn't become one with God. I couldn't become an extension of God. Down here in the body, I see nothing, but I get to become his hands. I get to become his feet. I get to become one with him by being an extension and expression of his will through doing the mitzvot. Amazing. Now the soul's changing its tune. Wow, this is a powerful experience here in this body. You know what they say. We're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience, right? So the soul starts to realize, wow, this human experience, this being in a body, this embodiment, this actually has some pretty heavy advantages. I get to do mitzvahs. I get to become an extension of God's will. I become one with God through that act, through every mitzvah. And just when the soul starts to really get into a groove, because, you know, there's a learning curve. For a while, you know, sometimes you use your body as a vehicle for doing God's will, and that's swell. And then sometimes you realize, you know, like life hacks, where you figure out, like, clever alternative uses for stuff. Sometimes <laughs> the body, with its own ego and its own set of... Uh, of uh, wish list, its own uh, desires comes along and says, hey, you know, you could use your body to do mitzvahs, but you could also use your body for other stuff that's also fun. So there's a learning curve for a while, but eventually you get good at it, and you really, you get that good energy, that flow, that dynamic between soul and body, and they're really working as a team, doing mitzvahs together, and then one day, there's a tap on the shoulder, neshamaleh, little soul, you've done a wonderful job, thank you. Come, come back up. And the soul says, no, 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 no. You know, it's like when you get into the pool and it's cold. And then after a while it's comfortable and now you don't want to get out. The shamala, come, you're finished. You've done a marvelous job. Come back. The soul says, no, this is where it's at. I want to be in the physical world where I can do mitzvahs, where I can actually be an extension of God. Not, I don't want to go back up there. Neshamala, it's time. You have to come back up. And now the neshama leaves the body and it's morning. The neshama is mourning. The soul is grieving. So you ask, where do we get these ideas? For instance, Shiva. Shiva is probably one of the most famous Jewish cultural observances. Everyone who doesn't know Shiva, even the least observant, know Shiva. They might not even know the translation of Shiva, that it literally means seven, because it's the seven-day mourning period. But everyone knows Shiva. What's Shiva? Where do we get it from? Where does it come from? The mourning period, seven days and 30 days and 11 months, that's a reflection of the soul's grieving, the soul's mourning, as it separates from its partner, the body. See, what happens at first when the soul separates from the body? It can't even believe it. Can't even believe that's happening. And so the soul wants to stay with the body. The soul is consciousness. That doesn't end. So the soul stays with the body, and it actually, because it cannot transition away from embodiment, it's, it stays with the body. And it's conscious of everything that's happening to the body, and it's actually very disturbing for the soul, which is why we have the custom of shmira. Shmira means guarding 
literally, and it means that somebody stays with the, with, with the deceased's body to give comfort to the soul and usually stays there and says words of Torah, of Psalms. What's more, we make sure to make the burial as quick as possible. Why? Because after the body is actually buried, well, you know, then it's real. Then the soul sees this is really happening. So the shock, it gets over the initial shock, and it's able to make its first transition, its first um, hopefully graceful move away from the body. What does it do at that point after the burial? The soul goes back and forth from the grave to the home where the person lived. How long does it do that for? Seven days. That's why the shiva is seven days. That's why it's generally done in the home of the person. Because that's where the soul is going back and forth from the grave where the body is, back to the home where it used to live. And the shiva is meant to reflect, not our mourning, but it's, we're being empathic, we're being compassionate toward the mourning, the grieving of the soul. Then after seven days, the soul stops doing that, it stops going back and forth, and it detaches a little bit more. It releases a little bit more, and it backs away. Obviously, we're not talking spatially. The soul at this point is not operating within space because it's left its body backs away, meaning it lets go of its earthly experience a little bit. And then there's a period up until the first 30 days. That's another period of mourning. And then after 30 days, the soul lets go again. So each of these phases of mourning correspond to, why do, the, why do the phases of mourning start intensely and then they ease up? So you could say, okay, psychologically, because it's the, 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 the family who's left behind, at first they feel it intensely and then, okay, so that's also true. They're both true, they're both true. But on a, on a spiritual level, it's reflecting the fact that at first the soul feels this intense shock and this loss of losing its partner, the body, and gradually backs away and lets go. Now, during this period of time of letting go, the soul is transitioning into a spiritual existence, whereas it had been in a physical existence, now it's transitioning to a spiritual existence. Um, some of that transition is painful. First of all, you know, you talk about, you talk about Gehenna, purgatory. I know many people even ask, do Jewish people believe in hell? Do we even believe in hell? Well, you know, I think that became like this famous Hebrew school, curt answer. No, we don't believe in hell. Well, we don't believe in the Christian hell. We don't believe in the Christian anything. We don't believe in eternal damnation. No. But there is a concept of purgatory. I mean, purgatory is a, is a clumsy English translation. Let's use the Jewish term, Gehenna. And that means that there is a rough period during which the soul is detaching from its, the life that it just finished living. And there is trauma for the soul in that, during that period. One of the things that happens is the soul reviews its life. Whereas when I was in a body, I could bury my guilt. I could distract myself from my shame. 
but now the soul can't, you know, can't hide anymore, and it's extremely aware. You can't just go and uh, you know, cover your sadness by eating a chocolate cake anymore. You don't have a body. It's one of the drawbacks of not having a body. You can't drown your sadness in chocolate cake or in a, in a, in a, in a bottle of scotch. And the, and the soul's watching its, its life in instant replay. And some of those moments are shameful. And the heat, the burning that it feels, is the burning shame. Then there's also, there's a, there's a purgatory of snow. What's that? When the soul has to watch itself being slothful. When it sees mitzvahs, not of commission, but of omission. I could have done, you know, I just I could have gotten up off the couch and I could have done that, done the loving thing, and I was apathetic and I sat there. And now the soul's watching it again. That's very painful to witness my own apathy, my own lack of action, and that 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 feels like cold, not physical cold, a spiritual cold. And all of this is happening, but the maximum amount of time that it happens for is 11 months. Well, I should say. There are special, unique cases of somebody who's been really naughty, and we're told that the purgatory lasts for 12 months. But normal people, the maximum is 11 months. The ritual of, of reciting Kaddish every day, at every minion every day, lasts for how long? 11 months. Because the whole concept of that ritual is to aid the soul during that purgatory period. So we do 11 months max. We don't want to do 12 months because that would be like saying, hey, I know this guy. He really, <laughs> he's got a lot to work off. You know, it's going to take him an extra month. He's going to take, he's going to need the full amount of time. So we don't do the 12 months. We don't, we only do the 11 months. And what happens is the Kaddish is, is easing the soul during this traumatic time. And then after the 11 months, Kaddish is no longer said every day. At that point, what happens? How often do we say Kaddish again after the initial 11 months? Once a year on the York site. Why do we say it again? Okay, so you can give the psychological answer, you know, the cycle of the year and the seasons come full circle and we remember and we commemorate. And that's true. That's also true. But I'm here to give you the spiritual perspective as well, which is a year is a spiritual thing. It's, it's not Pesach because it's spring. It's spring because it's Pesach. The Jewish year is a spiritual thing. It also corresponds with and actually we might say causes this cycle we know of. It, 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 uh, called a year in time and space, but a year is also a spiritual thing. And, and, and the Shammahs up there in heaven, they also experience years. And a year is completion. A year is, it's interesting, the word year, Shana, like Shana Tova. Shana is an interesting word because it's like the word Sheni, which means second, like first and then second. But it also is the word Shinui, which means change or alteration. So hold on a second, that, that's, that's an internal contradiction. If it's a repetition, if it's doing something the second time, that sounds like you're doing it the same each time. Shani, but shinui, which means, which means change, that means you're doing it different every time. How do you explain that? How is the word shana, a year, both a repetition and a change? So the mystics explain, especially the Hasidic uh, teachings, that it's like, 
a spiral staircase. It's a spiral staircase that you come full circle, but each time you come full circle, it's at a higher level. There's an x-axis and there's a y-axis, right? So a year in, in one hand is a repetition. Oh, it's Pesach again. But then on the other hand, no, this Pesach is going to be on a higher level than last year's Pesach because we're growing. Every year, the soul has an elevation to a higher level of consciousness. Then why the Kaddish? Just like during the 11 months when the soul needed the Kaddish in order to ease its transition of letting go of its bodily existence, every year on the yort site, the soul needs also some help being eased in the potential trauma of a transition. What is the transition from level to level within the afterlife, within the spiritual worlds? Think of it like this. In order for the soul, well, let's start, let's ask a more basic question. Why does the soul have to transition away from its bodily existence? What's wrong with just leaving it, let it hover over its body for eternity? And the answer, of course, is we've been talking about the fact that the soul has a whole life that existed before embodiment and will continue after embodiment. You know, it's, it's spiritual, eternal existence in heaven. So, and, and that is the ability to, to comprehend godliness and to observe this revelation of godliness. So we want the soul to be able to get on with that and go, go experience that, that pleasure. As long as the soul is still attached, the soul itself is consciousness, or at least that's an aspect of the soul, perception, consciousness. As long as the soul is still attached to its physical existence, even though it's no longer in a body, but if it's focused on the body, it's not available to experience its spiritual existence. So what has to happen is it has to forget about the body. When we say it's backing away, again, remember, like I said, it's not spatially backing away. It's not going somewhere in space. Backing away is mentally, like distancing itself from those thoughts. Why? Because in order for the soul to really experience what souls experience in heaven, it has to forget about this world and all of its experiences here. As long as it's still judging things and experiencing things through these eyes, it detracts, it prevents the soul from experiencing its spiritual existence, which is also why we're told not to excessively mourn. Because when one excessively mourns, that actually forces the soul to focus on the people who are mourning for it. And now the soul cannot back away and cannot move on and transition gracefully to its spiritual experience. Just like when the soul left the body, there was a cleansing period. Which, by the way, I think the best way to describe those 11 months would be a cleansing period. It's not punishment. It's cleansing. Imagine it as a bath. Except maybe it's a bath and you're a cat. <laughs> you don't like it at the time, but after it's done, oh, 
That's, that hit the spot. That was exactly what I needed. In other words, it allows the soul to let go of its, of its time here in the body and to move on. But then each yard site, each year, when that cycle comes around, when the spiral staircase hits again, that same point, it's time for the soul to have another ascent, which is what we say. The neshama should have an aliyah. Aliyah means ascent, like Aliyah, you go to Israel. Israel is spiritually the highest state of a place to be, so we call that Aliyah. Or an, uh, Aliyah, when you get an Aliyah in Shul to, to come up to the Torah, it's coming up to the Torah physically also, because we put the Bima on a platform usually, but it's also spiritually, it's an ascent up to the Torah. So we say, we, traditionally on a, on a yort site, we say to the, the, the surviving, uh, the children who, who say Kaddish, we say to them, the Neshama should have an aliyah, an ascent. But in order for the soul to have an ascent, it has to forget everything again. Now you're going to say, hold on a second. But it forgot its physical embodiment. So why are we erasing the tapes again? So here's the thing. Just like the soul's memory of physicality prevents it from fully experiencing the spiritual world, so too, exactly so, the soul's memory of a previous level of heaven also distracts it and makes it unable to experience a higher level of heaven. So it has to forget completely that context, whatever heaven that soul was experiencing for the past year. Even imagine like Moses who passed away 3,300 some odd years ago. So every year on the seventh day of Adar, his soul has another ascent. He's at 3,300 some odd levels in heaven. And, and, and yet each level, each new level is incomparably greater than the previous to the extent that any memory of the previous level would hold it back, would hinder the soul's experience of the higher level. So that's the idea of the Kaddish each year on the yard site, to ease that transition because the soul's having the, the tapes erased again and that, that getting scrubbed clean can feel a little bit traumatic. So the Kaddish eases that. It eases that and allows the soul to gracefully ascend to another level. Now, I just want to tell you a little bit more about the source of the Kaddish, how do we, where do we know that the Kaddish has this property, that it helps the soul in this way. Uh, the Kaddish, as I'm sure many of you know, doesn't mention mourning, it doesn't mention death, it's a, it's a prayer of praise to God. Um, what I'll tell you even more than that, I'm sure people are familiar with that concept, the Kaddish doesn't mention death, it's, a, it's praise of God. Okay, so a lot of people I see are saying, yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Let me tell you even more than that. Not only does it not mention death or mourning or anything like that, but it wasn't even um, designed to be said by mourners or by the deceased's loved ones. It, it existed long before it was used that way. Just like our entire prayer book was comp composed by the men of the Great Assembly. So Kaddish existed before. It was a prayer. It was a prayer. Um, where and when did we find out that it has this power? That specifically is helpful with souls that are moving on. The story is told that Rabbi Akiva, the great Rabbi Akiva, 
who uh, became one of the, well, the, the foremost Torah scholar of his, of his generation. He's the one who started learning Torah at 40 years old. And by the time he was 80, he became the, the greatest teacher of his generation. He's also one of the 10 martyrs that we read about on uh, Yom Kippur. Rabbi Akiva was once walking through a cemetery. And he saw a man without clothes who looked like he was covered in soot or charcoal, carrying a heavy load of wood. And Rabbi Akiva began to talk to this man. And the man said, please don't detain me, or my supervisors will punish me. Rabbi Akiva asked, what's the situation here? What's going on? And he worked out that the man was actually uh, not a living person. He was uh, an apparition of, of, of some type. Rabbi Akiva said, what's going on here? And the guy said, I confess that I was not a very worthy person in my lifetime. And he described some of the things he had done, which were terrible sins, both against man and against God. Uh, he was not a good guy. He was not a good guy. And um, Rabbi Akiva said, well, have you overheard from your supervisors anything that can be done to alleviate some of your suffering? And he said, well, I did hear one thing, but it's, it's futile. Rabbi Akiva said, what is it? He said, if I would have a son who would recite Kaddish. See, Kaddish already existed. It was a prayer. If I would have a son who would recite Kaddish, then uh, it would help me over here. But I don't have a son. He says, my wife was pregnant when I died, but I don't know what happened. So Rabbi Akiva says, tell me your name, your wife's name, the, the town where you lived. I'm going to check it out. And that's what happened. Rabbi Akiva searched for this person's uh, widow, and when he went to the town, he started asking, do you know where the widow of the such and such person is? Everybody, like, they would spit on the ground. They would say, cursed be he, let his bones rot. He was a, not a popular person, for, and for, he, he had earned that reputation. Um, and Rabbi Akiva found the widow, and she had a child, she had a son. And he wasn't, he didn't even have a bris. He had never been circumcised. Why? Because no one would be the moil. They hated this man. And like I said, he had earned that reputation. Um, so Rabbi Akiva said, give me, give me the child. And he circumcised the child. And he sat the child down and he started learning Torah with the child. But the child was totally irreceptive. He was not being raised. Forget about it. He, he hadn't been to Hebrew school. I mean, he, he, he wasn't a mensch. He, he, was, he was from a dysfunctional home. He was a... And Rabbi Akiva was trying to teach this boy to read Hebrew and to be able to pray and, and nothing doing. It was not happening. And so Rabbi Akiva fasted for 40 days. That means the daytimes, not 24 hours like Yom Kippur, you know, just in the daytimes, 40 days consecutively. And at the end of the 40 days, um, Hashem had mercy and opened the boy's heart and mind to be receptive to the holy words of Torah and uh, the Jewish prayers. And Rabbi Akiva at that point proudly brought the boy to the synagogue where he recited Kaddish. And then later in a dream, this deceased man appeared to Rabbi Akiva and thanked him for having facilitated his graceful transition out of his purgatory state. So that, that's where we learn the potency of Kaddish. We learned it from that story. I, I think it's remarkable
um, for various reasons, but one of them being, I know that I sometimes get questions from people, it does happen, who wonder, people who have mixed feelings about a deceased parent and wonder if it's right to even say Kaddish. And what I answer them is that the very origin of this ritual, the very source for which we know about its potency is a source, is a story about a child whose father was not a very worthy person and not a very esteemed person. And, and, and what's more, the son never even knew his father. And yet, Kaddish was prescribed and was effective. There's another ritual that many of us are familiar with, aside for the mourning period and then the yearly Kaddish, the Yortzeit. And that's something that occurs several times throughout the year, not just on uh, Yom Kippur, although that seems to be the popular one, but on, on, on the uh, Jewish holidays, there's a custom to recite Yizkor in, in Shul. We're familiar with this, this custom. Yizkor is an interesting prayer. If you look at the prayer itself, it's actually very short. And it's actually not all that poetic, it's kind of practical, and it speaks about making a commitment without a vow to give tzedakah, to give charity. So it's interesting, this, this prayer that draws so many people from across the all walks of Jewish life, and, and they come flooding into the synagogues uh, to recite this prayer. And it's, uh, you would think it's some powerful, deep, spiritual, it, it's really a pledge to, uh, to give tzedakah in the merit of the departed soul. So what's that about? So remember we're talking about the, the, the body-soul combination, the body-soul team, you know, the Abraham and Sarah dynamic, and how they, you know, at first they're this odd couple, and then they get into a groove, and they start working well together. There's a, there's a passage in the Talmud that talks about uh, the body and the soul, and asks, how are they judged? How are the body and the soul judged? Because after all, at the end of 120 years in this world, the soul will blame the body and say, hey, you know, if I did anything wrong, it was I committed those acts with the body. If I wouldn't have had a body, I couldn't have done it. 
And the body will blame the soul and say, yeah, but without the soul, I'm just like a stone. I'm inanimate. <laughs> the soul gave me the energy. So the Talmud says, I'll tell you a parable. Parables like this. There was once a king, and the king owned an orchard. And the orchard contained trees with lovely fruit. And he hired a couple of watchmen to guard over the orchard. And these were interesting watchmen. One watchman was blind, and the other watchman was physically disabled. He didn't have use of his uh, hands and feet. One day they got to talking and they conspired. And they said to each other, you know, here's an idea. Let's steal the king's fruits from his trees and we'll eat them up. And no one will be able to pin it on us. It's the perfect crime. Because if they say to the guy, who is blind, he'll say, what are you talking, I can't even see the fruits, how would I grab them? And then if they say to the guy with no use of his hands and feet, he'll say, me? I can't grab them, I, wasn't, I can't even go over to the tree. So they decided that's the perfect crime, and what are they going to do? That the blind fellow is going to put the other guy, or rather, to the country, the, other, the blind fellow is going to go on the shoulders of the lame fellow, and they're going to, one is going to be the hands and feet, and the other is going to be the, uh, the eyes. So, and that's how they stole the fruit, and they ate the fruit, and then the king showed up, and he said, hey, who took my fruits? And they were, you know, laughing. They thought it was very funny, because they can't, uh, nobody can pin it on them. And the king, uh, but the king was very wise. And uh, he said, no problem. I got a solution for this. You know how I'm going to punish you? Because I'm looking at the, you can't do the sin on your own. You couldn't do the sin on your own. What we'll do is, you, get on his shoulders just like you were when you did the act. And I'll give you some pets. I'll beat you while you're poised like that, one on top of the other. That's the parable that it gives. What's the idea there? that the soul and the body can only be effective together. The soul needs the body, the body needs the soul. Now, the same is true with reward, by the way. Anything that the soul was able to accomplish, it did through the body. And that's why, ultimately, ultimately, even though it's very pleasant for the soul to be in heaven, but remember we were speaking about before, heaven is where the soul gets to observe godliness, but not actually become one with godliness. It's really only in a body where that happens. That's why the ultimate reward, this is the 13th principle of Maimonides' 13 principles of faith. This is good old-fashioned religion over here. I mean, resurrection. Ultimately, the ultimate reward for the soul is to go back to the body. Because how are you going to reward the soul and not reward the body that helped it do its mitzvahs? How could you do that? You have to reward them together. So you put them both together and they get the reward together. Soul and body. Partners. That's why the ultimate, the ultimate reward and the ultimate state of perfection of this world, if you can fathom it, we can dream, can't we? Our prophets envisioned it, 
is a world in which our loved ones who have passed on will be resurrected in physical bodies. Their ultimate reward is not the heavenly experience in paradise, but resurrection, being back in a body. And that is our belief. That's one of our fundamental beliefs of Judaism. We believe with the coming of Mashiach, there will be a resurrection. Souls back in bodies. We get a little bit of a taste of that, though. Until such time comes where the souls come back to bodies, we have a little bit of a taste of that in our relationship with our departed loved ones. We act as their bodies in the interim until such time as they are resurrected and they return to their bodies. We act as their hands and feet. They are, they are, they are eyes. They see. See, we're blind, spiritually blind. We, we're, we're, we're buried in the stimuli of, of, of this world. So we're spiritually blind. They see everything. They see it all. But they don't have the hands and feet. We become their hands and feet. Just like the parable of the two guards who team up together to do bad or good, hopefully for good and for reward. I'll tell you a story that I experienced when I was a yeshiva student. I visited an old age home. And... Um, and I met a fellow there who was uh, a survivor of the war. And he told me a story about the first Simchas Torah after the liberation from the camps. And he was living in a DP camp. That's a displaced person's camp with all the other war refugees. And he was, a, he was a boy, eight, nine years old. And uh, through the war, he had survived. The last time he'd seen his father, the last time he'd seen his father was right before Simchas Torah, which is the, the most joyous day of the Jewish year. It's sort of the climax of the whole high holiday season. You know, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And then finally Simchat Torah, which is the dancing that's... It's the, the pinnacle of the whole high holiday season. And the, he was separated from his father during that period of time. Um, but his father told him, don't worry, I'm going to see you again. And on Simchas Torah, you're going to dance on my shoulders. So what the fellow told me. They were separated and he didn't know where his father was, and he didn't see his father. I don't know if it was a year, it was two years. I don't know how many Simchas Torahs passed when he didn't see his father. Um, but what he, as he explained it, when he got to the DP camp, he met somebody who was unfortunately able to confirm for him that his father had not survived. And when he found this out, it was right before Simchas Torah, which was supposed to be their reunion, which was supposed to be what he had been looking forward to. He was going to dance on his father's shoulders. So um, he tells me that that night in shul, he was dancing and dancing and dancing with the men. He was the only child there. And the I guess in the shul there, and he was dancing with the men, and finally, 
they became worried for him. They thought maybe he's, I don't know, maybe he's traumatized um, because he just wouldn't stop dancing all night. And he looked joyful. So one of the adults took him aside and asked him if he's okay. And he said, I told, I told the man, I'm fine. My father promised that we're going to dance together on Simchas Torah. I thought I will dance on his shoulders, but instead he's dancing on my shoulders. This is the relationship that each of us have to, to loved ones who are who no longer have their bodies. They will again, we're promised, it's one of our fundamental beliefs, that they will again return to their bodies. But in the interim, until such time as Mashiach comes, we are their bodies. And they're dancing on our shoulders. They see, we're blind. They are privy to all the revelations in heaven. And we see none of it. We feel none of it. But we're the hands and feet. We're able-bodied. And that means when, when they leave this physical world, they're not tempted. They're not distracted anymore by any of this stuff. They see the truth and they, 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 they want light and they want wisdom and, and they want holiness. And that means mitzvot. That means good deeds as God has deemed in his holy Torah. And so the, 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 the soul craves mitzvot. It craves to put on tefillin to light Shabbos candles, to give tzedakah, to eat kosher food. And it can't do any of that without a body. Except the soul, the souls in heaven, who leave behind loved ones, in a, in a way, they do have bodies. Ours. Ours. They ride on our shoulders. We act as the hands and feet. What's the most spiritual thing you can do for a soul? A physical act of a mitzvah. See, the souls have all the spirituality, but they can't do the physical act of the mitzvah. We were spiritually, you know what we're like. You know what we're like. Spiritually, maybe once in a while we have a good moment. We get really... Uh, aroused to something, you know, once in a while. But uh, that's not our forte. Our forte is not spiritual sensitivity. I can speak for myself. But you know what we do really well? Hands and feet. We show up. We show up. We use that body to do God's will and become an extension of godliness. Surrendered, nullified to his will. Souls up there can't do that and they crave it more than anything. That's what they crave more than anything. They can't do it, but we can do it for them. So it comes to Yizker, and what's Yizker? You would think it's going to be all spiritual, and it's going to talk about all the stuff going on in heaven. That's not what the souls are interested in. You think they came to Shul, and that's what the souls do, right? That's why the people who aren't saying Yizker have to leave the Shul. Why do they leave the Shul? Because the souls are here. Something's happened. The souls come to the Shul. And anyone who's not saying Yisker doesn't belong there. 
It's a private moment. If you don't have private business with a soul during Yisker, you're asked politely to excuse yourself to leave. And those who have business with a soul, what's the business they have with a soul? What does the soul want to hear from you more than anything? Spirituality, that's what it, that's what it has all day. What it wants from you is physicality. Action. A mitzvah. And if you want to get really, really physical, there's no mitzvah that's more physical, that's more material than taking the money that you worked for, which you put in your effort, your toil of your body, and which you could spend that money to procure needs to take care of your body, and you turn that, the ultimate transformation, you turn that mundane physical money into a mitzvah by giving it away to a worthy cause. Souls see that and they say, thank you. That hits the spot. That's the kind of thing I would do if I had a body. And thank God I do have a body. I'm, I'm, I'm able... I'm able to ride on your shoulders. I'm able to do some of the things I want, I would, I'm yearning to do. I can do it through you. Thank you. That's what we're able to give souls. That's why in general, this is the last thing I want to really share with you, and then I'm very happy to going to open it up for questions. In general, when we talk about how to pay our respects, to deceased loved ones. Mitzvahs. You want to know what they crave? Mitzvahs. The stuff that they can only do in a body. You've got a body. You're in this world. You have the opportunity. You can do it for them. And, and, and tzedakah is one. You know, giving money, yeah. But there are so many different ways of doing mitzvahs. Even giving tzedakah, it's money. But there's also, you know, there's a well-known story. There's a particular rabbi who always used to say, you know, when it comes to religious obligations, don't be religious in a way that's going to be at someone else's expense. That's what he used to say. And um, one time he came to shul, and it was on his, uh, he was saying Kaddish, and uh, I believe it was, it was a yard site. And there was another person there who also was saying Kaddish, also had a yard site. And in, you know, different shuls have different customs, by the way. You'll, you'll find it when you go to different places. And in this particular place, one person said Kaddish at a time. Now, there's most places you can have multiple people. But in that shul, one person said Kaddish at a time. So normally, a fight breaks out, right? Who gets to say Kaddish? And in this particular case, this rabbi said to the, to the other person, you go, you say Kaddish for your father, I'll, I'll sit out. So somebody said to him, hold on. You're always saying, you know, if you want to be pious, don't be pious on somebody else's, at somebody else's expense. Well, you're being very pious. You're being very generous. You're letting this other person say Kaddish. But it's at your father's expense. That's his Kaddish. You deprived of him. It's, it's not your Kaddish to, to give away. It's your father's Kaddish you just gave away. And the rabbi said, do you think that Kaddish is the only Kaddish that a son can say for a father? Doing a kind act, having compassion, acting lovingly to somebody else, that's also a merit. 
that's also a Kaddish. So the fact that I let this other guy say Kaddish, because I saw it would break his heart if he couldn't be the one to say Kaddish, and I do that in my father's merit, that's also a Kaddish. So bottom line, this is what it comes down to. The whole way in Jewish death and mourning really comes down to one thing. Souls come to this world, souls leave this world. Most often they leave behind people in this world. And until they come back to this world, we are their hands and feet, we are their bodies, we do mitzvahs. We do mitzvahs, physical actions, not 613 meditations, 613 good ideas, 613 practical actions that make this physical world a better place, a holier place, the kind of place that ultimately, and this is another one of the principles of faith, that ultimately this world will become holier than heaven. Do we believe in heaven? Of course we believe in heaven, but that's not the ultimate. The ultimate is this world when this world is perfected. Perfected to such an extent that it's holy enough that souls from heaven will want to be here more than being in heaven. They'll come back to their bodies and we'll all be able to do all of the mitzvahs together. Souls in bodies. And it should be immediately. We have any uh, questions, comments? Yeah. Start with one, and then yeah. This is a great question. I said that like an hour ago. You start from where I started, okay. And then we'll go in order. And then when you're finished, someone else will go through the whole talk. Okay, no problem. I'm here all night. So think about it like this. If I have a message for you, and I want to pick the words with which to convey that message. And let's say I have an infinite amount of time to formulate that message. I think uh, one of the great uh, writers, American authors, said that writing is rewriting. Real writing is the rewriting, the editing process. And let's say that I'm conveying a message to you and I get it down to just the exact perfect formulation. Every word is exactly the word, the punctuation, the, the rhythm, the diction, everything is exact economy of language, not a superfluous word. And it says everything I want it to say. Now that's a document. That's like the Gettysburg Address, right? A short, sweet, powerful formulation of words that says everything you want it to say. Beautiful, okay. Now here's the problem. I have an infinite amount of information to convey to you. And you don't have an infinite amount of time to hear it. And we don't have an infinite amount of space where to put it. So I'm gonna convey infinite amounts of wisdom to you in a finite formula. The dilemma I just described that is essentially God's dilemma in formulating the Torah. But you're living into interpretations of 
So when, and that's the second part of your question. So when God gave at Sinai this finite, call it the zip file, for this um, application that has to be opened up and decoded, he also said, guys, this is just the code. This is, not, this is the bullion cube. You need the hot bowl of water to put it in. The bullion cube is the written Torah. The hot bowl of water is the oral Torah. You need the oral Torah, meaning the discussions, the explanations. And by the way, in case anybody is just going to walk along and say, let me, I'll crack the code, I'll interpret it for you. I'm giving you rules, how it's done. And if you look in the prayer book, in the morning prayers, right before, um, right before the verses of praise, there's a teaching of Rabbi Yishmael. It says, Rabbi Yishmael said that there are 13 means by which the Torah is interpreted. There's a set of rules. It's a very particular set of, uh, uh, it's a methodology with a set of rules, how that's to be interpreted. And the sages of the oral Torah, of the Mishnah, and of the Talmud, they were experts in how to apply this methodology. So when you have both, when you have the hyper-condensed, finite zip file of the infinite information, which is called written Torah, along with the methodology, which is also given by God at Sinai, now you can start to de decode it and unpack it the right way. But there are two things that are no-nos. One is, somebody's just going to pick up a Bible and start reading and think they know what it says. We have problems with that, by the way. <coughs> there are a couple of major world religions which have billions of followers, which are based on picking up our Bible and just reading it and trying to figure out what it says, without using our methodology or tradition that was given at Sinai. And the other no-no is to start making up your own methodology. They're intrinsically linked. They have to, you can't have one without the, without the other. So when you have the written Torah and you have the oral Torah together, take, what, what do we gain from this? Infinite information through a finite medium. What does it mean, infinite information? It means that when we study together, when we sit together, um, what night is the class here? There's, there's got to be classes here, right? What, one of the classes? Wednesday night. Wednesday night. What's the class Wednesday night? JLI. When we come to JLI on Wednesday night and we get into a Torah discussion, we are actually part of the ongoing big giant hot ball of water in which the bullion cube is steeping. We are the continuation of the oral Torah. As long as we're doing it within the confines, within the system and the methodology of the oral Torah that was given at Sinai. So that's what I mean by infinite. It means we can infinitely learn Torah and always discover new nuances. They were always there. We haven't unpacked them yet. And then even after Mashiach comes and after the souls come back to bodies, you know what we're going to continue doing? Learning even more the Torah. Not that there will be a new Torah given, God forbid. It'll be the same original text that every Jewish community has, that same Torah scroll exactly to the letter. But we'll just continue unpacking it and unpacking it and unpacking it forever.
It's been 3,000 years so far. Yeah. How much more time do we need? Mashiach? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I agree with you there. It's getting ridiculous. It's beyond ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in spirituality, there are infinite levels. So theoretically, there are infinite rungs of the spiritual ladder that those souls can climb. And, and, and nevertheless, they want to be back down here. Because this is where it's really at. Yeah. I don't have a very deep question. Mine's practical. All the souls that are coming back, at what age? Oh, when they resurrect. Yes. In other words, my parents, my grandparents, at what stage of their okay. life are they That's a fantastic question. So I'll tell you something. Um, it will not startle you if I tell you. There are various opinions on that, right? Because, yeah, that's what they say every time. Every time. Every time. Various opinions. But let, let, me, let me tell you about the things as they will be after uh, Mashiach comes. There's one area of life that the discussion is really open-ended. I'll tell you what I mean. In the Torah, there are discussions, there are different opinions. Like, for instance, when you light the menorah on Hanukkah, do you light one more light every night? Or do you start with eight and do one less every night? Okay, so that different opinions. But practically speaking, we don't do both. You have to pick one. And we do like Hillel, we like one more every night. Okay, so there are different opinions, but at the end, we pick one way and we stick with it. That's what we do. And we, so we have a certain amount of regularity or, or certainty. There's one area of Jewish life where all the opinions are still just opinions and we don't know which one is valid yet. And that is everything that pertains to stuff that hasn't yet occurred. So Mashiach hasn't yet come, even though I think there's a popular world religion that's based on that idea. Um, but Mashiach hasn't yet come. L look in the world. Mashiach's not yet here. So we don't know how it's going to go down. Maimonides writes famously at the end of his um, Mishnah Torah, and he says that the sages said not nice things about people who try to get too deep in figuring out exactly what it's going to be like. You should know that the mitzvah is to believe that it will be so in, and, and not to try to figure out exactly how it's going to be because it hasn't been yet. We'll find out when it happens. So to answer your question, there are different opinions about that. Um, questions about what age people will be when they resurrect. What state will they be in? Will they be healed from whatever it was that took their life? Or will they have to heal after becoming resurrected? Will they be, what, what age will they be? These are things that hopefully we're going to find out very, very soon. But the main thing to understand is that this is one of the 13 principles of faith. In fact, it is the ultimate. It's the 13th of the 13 principles of faith. And it is basic Judaism. And we are reminded of it every single day in our prayers, in the morning prayers, when we recite the verse from the book of Exodus, and Oz Yashir and then Moses will sing. When will he sing? In the resurrection. He'll sing again once more.
So hopefully we'll see all this stuff very, very soon. It'll be all sorted out for us. By the way, some of the things the prophets talk about are metaphorical. Some of it's literal. We'll find out. We'll find out. Yeah. What about um, the whole concept of parapsychology and people speaking to mediums to speak to the dead and, and prophets? And yeah. That's a great question. You know, it's interesting. I was just mentioning Maimonides, and it's actually a machleikis rambam and ramban. It is a dispute between Maimonides and Nachmanides. Maimonides says that when the Torah tells you don't go to the soothsayer and the necromancer and the, you know, in the, in, 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 um, in the book of Deuteronomy, there are right in a row a bunch of uh, mitzvahs about uh, don't go to the fortune teller and the this and the that. And uh, Maimonides says because it's a waste of time, it's a bunch of hooey, it doesn't work. And Nachmanides says, no, it does work, but that's not what we, we we're not into that. We don't, we don't do that. So there is a place to say that there are legitimate um, means through which people can connect to and contact the spirit world. Nevertheless, a Jew is not meant to do that. The way that we are meant to connect with souls that we care for are through the tried and true observances of Jewish tradition, which is we do mitzvot, we pray, we study Torah, and the merit of the souls. But not that we attempt to conjure them through uh, paranormal means. We can even pray at the grave sites of loved ones and of righteous ones. And that's a legitimate Jewish practice. Just you have to worry about people who come back and say they heard things while they were there. <laughs> right? Uh, so either way, either they're hearing things, that's what Maimonides would say, or uh, it's real, and they just contacted something that is forbidden for a Jew to dabble in, according to Nachmanides. So either way, we don't. Yeah. I'll go, I'll go this, this, this. Okay, so I'll start with you. So every soul is individual to a particular body? Ooh, such a good question. Is every soul particular to every body? So here's the thing. Let me make your question even tougher. Reincarnation. That's where you're thinking. Yeah. People ask this a lot. They ask, is reincarnation a Jewish belief? Oh, I thought that was just Buddhism. Um, yes, reincarnation is in Judaism. I'll tell you where reincarnation appears in a Jewish text that almost every Jew who's nominally observant is aware of. It's in the Maxwell House Haggadah. <laughs> what does it say? It says that about Lazar ben Azariah said, I was like a 70-year-old man, and I could not convince the sages that they, we say Shema at the nighttime until... Okay, what, what does it mean, I was like a 70-year-old man? Either you were or you weren't. The historical fact is he was an 18-year-old man. The stories in the Talmud. He was it was a he was an eighteen year old, 
And um, the story is he became the president of the high court, the chief justice of the, the high court. And he came home and his wife said to him, you don't look the part. And uh, the next day he had a little white in his beard. And she said, oh, now, now you look distinguished. Now, you know. On a deeper level, what was happening is that he was actually imbued with an extra 52 years. He was a reincarnation of Samuel the prophet who lived to be 52. So with his 18 plus Samuel's 52, that's what means 70. But it's not exactly 70 because he spread it out over two lifetimes, so it's, it's like I'm 70. And then eventually when he needed it, he was able to cash in those 52 years from his previous reincarnation and get some white in his beard a little prematurely. Yeah, so we've all been around before and it mentions it in the Haggadah. Um, so when you ask which body is going to get resurrected, lifetime number one, lifetime number two, lifetime number three, the Arizal, Isaac Luria, the Kabbalist, says, generally speaking, souls don't come more than three times. Um, and by the way, what determines whether or not a soul has to come back? Based on what calculation? What's, is there a system for it? Until you've done all 613 commandments until you've done all 613 commandments. Purpose of reincarnation is so you can hit all the mitzvahs. That's what it's for. Has anyone done that? Has anyone done that? Is no longer reincarnating? No, 613 Spread out over multiple lifetimes, sure. So the question now becomes, which body will resurrect? Okay, so the different opinions. One is, and we'll see what it is when it happens. One is, whichever body did the most mitzvahs, because whichever body did the most mitzvahs, that's the most refined body. That's the body where its physicality was a tool for spirituality. And it'll be that body. Another opinion is, no, all the bodies. Well, why not? Well, how can you have one soul and multiple bodies? Which was, that's, that was your original question. How can you light the whole menorah with one shamash. A soul is energy, it's like a flame. You can light many candles with one flame. So let one soul come and animate a whole bunch of bodies. Now you can ask where we're gonna put all those people? Okay, find that out too. All I know is I go up in the airplanes, I fly all over the world, and uh, for the first couple minutes while you're leaving the airport, you look down and you see houses, and then for the next four or five hours, you see nothing. So I think there's some space in the world. I think there's space. I don't think it's a question of space, it's a question of allocating resources. But when there'll be peace and brotherhood and everyone will, be, everyone will act like a mensch, we'll figure out how to allocate the resources and not to worry about that. Yeah. Oh, boom, boom, boom. Okay, yeah. So when I do a mitzvah, yeah. am I doing it to glorify my mother's soul or my soul? Mm. Can it be both? You tell me. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, because it's spiritual, it's not limited. 
See, it's not like a physical thing where, you know, one of the laws of physics is um, that one object can't be in two places at the same time. Even according to the, like quantum, you know, it's like until you observe it, but you can't locate one object in two places at the same time. Those are objects. So like for instance, if I have a dollar and you have a dollar, and I give you my dollar and you give me your dollar, how many dollars do I have, how many dollars do you have? The same what we started with, I still have a dollar, we just switched dollars, that's it. Because once I move my dollar to you, it's not with me. And you moved your dollar to me, it's not with you. That's the way physical objects work. But let's say I have an idea and you have an idea. And I tell you my idea and you tell me your idea. Now, how many ideas do I have and how many ideas do you have? We both have two. Because an idea is spiritual. It's abstract. It's not tangible. It's not limited. It can be in two places at the same time. I can be thinking it and you can be thinking it simultaneously. So, yeah, you can do a mitzvah. A mitzvah being a physical action, yes, but a physical action which is the medium for a spiritual energy. And that spiritual energy can affect many souls. So what I'll answer you is the mitzvah you do not only enriches your soul and, and the soul of, of your mother, but of generations back, every single soul on the golden chain that leads to your having been born at this time in this place for your unique mission. Yeah. This is hypothetical, right? Of course. Okay. <laughs> I knew it's hypothetical. Okay. hypothetical. Yeah. That's one part. What happens to their soul? Or you have a person who passes away, never had a child. Their life stops. There's no mitzvah done. Or no Kaddish and no Yiska. What happens? I mean, who's it based on? Or they're awful people. And I'm a wonderful person. Right. So to answer the question about what if righteous parents have wicked children, I think I've heard it said before, when it comes to Judaism, don't tell me about how religious your grandparents were. Tell me how religious your grandchildren are going to be. So we all have holy bubbies and zadies, and we look at the pictures of them, and they look like saints. But the truth is, what kind of grandchildren are we going to leave? It's a sobering question. But yes, our spiritual mission in this world is not just to accomplish what we can accomplish in our lifetimes. It's to leave behind a legacy. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. Yes. And we have a mitzvah, vishinantam levanecha, to educate our children. Now you're going to, yeah. The greatest thing you can do for God is to be good to your fellow person. Yeah. Now... So we all know people who were very good to everyone else but their own families. No, they, but they're not, they're not God-fearing people, but they're good to their fellow men. 
there are many mitzvot. So if somebody is a kind person and is a good person and is hitting many of the mitzvot that way and they're lacking in some of the more religious obligations, that doesn't erase the goodness that they're doing. It's not, it's not all or nothing. The only thing is, like we say in Yiddish, as good as good is besser nicht besser. Wouldn't it be better if you were a mensch and you put on tefillin? Of course, of course. But everything that's positive that you do in this world is a merit for the soul. Ah. So a person who has no children, you know, sometimes students are considered like children. When you leave behind people who were influenced by you, when their goodness is the application of the lessons that you transmitted to them, now your soul has a piece of that mitzvah as well. Yeah, but you can't say, but they can't say Kaddish for you because they're not family. You're right. Just to add something to that, why can't you? Like, I have a best friend, yeah. probably closer than a brother. Yeah. God forbid something happens to him, why can't I say Kaddish for him? So, technically, nobody is obligated to say Kaddish for the deceased other than the deceased's but own children. But if you voluntarily choose to do so, because let's say they don't have anyone else to do it, or their children won't do it, or whatever the circumstances, then voluntarily, yes, Kaddish can be said for any soul that is left. And not just Kaddish, but all of the things we do for the benefit of a soul, like all the mitzvot that we do, and Torah study, and tzedakah, and uh, prayer. So if when you say Kaddish, and let's say, your parents are alive. Yeah. And your, your friend died. Yeah. Stay oh, that's an excellent question. Technically, if let's say somebody's friend passed away, like you're, the scenario you're, you're proposing and your parents are still alive, you can do many things in the merit of that deceased friend. But Kaddish, because it has that special connection, the one is obligated, not just voluntary. You're obligated for, for your parent, then you should ask their permission. Yeah, halakha is specific about that. That if a person's parents are alive and they want to say Kaddish for somebody else, they should ask their parents' permission. Yeah. 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 Today, Shiva has become two days with visiting times. Mm -hmm. I have children all over the world, basically. And it kind of bothers me that I'm going to be, you know, underground, whatever, with no one visiting me. Now, why does Judaism frown so much upon cremation? Is it because okay. of the body and then there's no body for the soul to come You just back? answered it. You got it. 
So to answer your first question about lamenting the uh, new American modern uh, micro shiva, <laughs> it is ridiculous. And you know, it used to be that no matter what level of observance somebody lived according to, there were certain things that were sacrosanct. And when it came to mourning, at least when it came to mourning, it was serious business. Okay, but you know what? It's an erosion of a border, of a boundary. It's a lack of sensitivity. No one's doing it to be bad. Nobody's purposely saying, let's have a short shiva just to be rebellious or spiteful. It's an erosion of a boundary. So it has to be, like any other boundary that gets eroded, has to be carefully reinstated. So where do you start? Start in your circle of influence. But yeah, Shiva is supposed to be <coughs> seven days, not including Shabbos. No mourning on Shabbos. Um, but as far as your question about people who have like the two-day Shiva and they, <coughs> they post times, obviously be respectful. I wouldn't, I wouldn't make my point by showing up, you know, at midnight. <coughs> As for your, yeah, and your cremation question, you answered yourself. Yeah. But why? Because you said before, one soul can animate many bodies, and yeah, but why prevent that body? Why can't all the bodies come back? Why prevent? Hmm. Yeah. It's a crying shame. That used to be unthinkable. There was a time when that was unthinkable. Okay, what can I tell you? It's just another example of the erosion of, of traditional boundaries. We have our work cut out for us. Yeah. Yeah. Its presence on the physical world. Yes. So my wife and I are soulmates. Yeah. So contrary to popular misconception, a husband and a wife are not compatible souls. They're one soul in two bodies. So you ask up there, is your wife going to forget you? How is she going to forget you? Up there, you're going to see the truth that she is you. So what you're saying is when one of us passes, because the chance of both of us going on the same day is zero, almost, that both of us are dying at the same time. A little bit, yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Okay. Second question. Romantic, huh? Yeah, second question. <laughs> and, I, and I say this with respect. Uh-oh, i got to brace myself. Anytime somebody says... Exactly, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. The devil's advocate. Okay, devil's advocate. Okay. 
How do you know it's seven days? And how do you know it's 30 days? And how do you know it's 11 months? Where did you get those dates, those numbers? How can you prove it? Right. So, like, that's a, that's a legitimate question. It's not a it's not a obnoxious question whatsoever. So that was the first thing that I came out and said at the beginning. I said, "How do we know anything as Jews? We know because of the Torah that was given to us at Sinai." Now you're going to say, "Where in Torah does it say seven days and thirty days, eleven months?" When I'm, and that's also what I attempted to, to say at the beginning of my talk, which is, it says it right there in the story of Abraham and Sarah. I don't see it there. Yeah, well, there's a lot that we don't see. The oral Torah decodes it, unpacks it, pulls out the meaning that's, that is encoded within the words. So to answer your question very briefly, <coughs> how do I know any of this stuff? Because Torah says so. Did I empirically test it out? not making such claims. But it's the same way that I know that Shabbos is the day of rest. And the same way that I know not to mix milk and meat. How do I know any of those things have spiritual benefits or, 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 or damages? Because the Torah says so. So it's the same way we know any of this information. And with Ahara, wasn't it wasn't the morning period for Aharon explicit in the Torah? So there are other um, hints, yes, as well, throughout the Torah. Uh, also, the um, a little bit more encoded, but on a level of drush as opposed to the level of sod, which I was quoting from Zohar, is the uh, shiva of Meshelach, who lived Methuselah, who lived the longest amount of time. The timing of his passing is a week short Actually, the flood is delayed by one week because of the Shiva. Yeah, there are different places in Torah where it's encoded or it's at different levels how deeply you have to pull it out or extract it. Yeah. Yeah. You said there's a lot of souls up there. I don't know the number. Yeah. How does each soul know what five to go to? Well, I have a question for you. When babies are born, how do the souls know what body to go to? That's my question to you. Yeah, and the answer is, oh, I thought you were talking about resurrection. No, no, no. You're talking about when babies are born. Yeah. Oh, that was your question. Yeah. And, you know, when I plug the uh, blender into the wall, how does the electricity know to make it blend? Maybe it should play music. Sometimes it does. I <laughs> <laughs> got an electrician for you. <laughs> How does your soul know to go into your body? Because that's where it fits. That's where a soul isn't a thing. A soul isn't a thing. A soul is a function. No, it's a function. Okay, but who, who determines what function, what spirit, what soul goes into which body? Who, who does it? Yes. There's a guy who works for the city. He's on pension. He's, uh, he works in a back office, and he looks it over, and he, makes, he, looks at, and he make, puts a stamp on the papers, and then they send the body. They send the soul to the body. Why do we need to do this? What? 
It's also a merit. It's also a merit for the departed soul. Name for the dead? Sephardic will do it even in the lifetime, but it's also it's the same thing. They'll just do it even earlier. Yeah. What else? What else? Let's, let's hit a couple more questions. Fast, rapid fire, rapid fire round. Yeah. Where we all have uh, choices to make every moment, what, what we're going to put our efforts to. Yeah. Why would Rabbi Akiva, who was a great sage, yeah. devote his energies to helping a, an evil sinner yeah. rather than doing... That's a great question. Um, like, it's not like Rabbi Akiva didn't have what else to do. Correct. Right? He could have found other ways to occupy his time. Why did he help that guy? Right. And my question is more like, okay, not only why did he do it, but why do we know this story? Because I'm sure Rabbi Akiva did a lot of stuff in his life that we don't know about. It wasn't handed down to us. Why was this story transmitted to us? And <clears throat> I told you one lesson that I take from it. <clears throat> which I've shared from people who have had um, difficult childhoods and who have mixed feelings about their deceased parents. Um, but I'll tell you another thing that teaches us is that when you have the opportunity, when divine providence presents to you an opportunity to help someone, you don't evaluate how worthy they are. The case presented itself to you. You were the one walking through that cemetery when that guy's ghost appeared. So who's supposed to take care of it? Some guy who wasn't there to see it? You were there. You do it. And I think that's a general rule in Judaism. What's the best mitzvah to do right now? Whatever mitzvah's right in front of you. Seize it. Do it. And then as soon as you're finished, look for the next mitzvah. Yeah? Should this be the last? This is the last question. Okay. Okay. Oh, wow. I have to say that every day it gives me a good feeling knowing what I'm doing is for my job. And it really does help. Um, yes, of course, him, but it helps me. Yeah. And those who ever have to say Kaddish um, don't turn around and say, I, I can't, I can't. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that personal information that I hope will encourage many others in many ways, not just for Kaddish, but to follow our traditions and to remember that really we have the best program for living in the Torah. Thank you for that. Okay, thanks for, for, for everything. Thank you. Thank you very much.